0: Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm.
1: Do you know those days when it feels like problems just pop out of nowhere?
0: I sure do. And the helpful folks at State Farm do. Like,
1: oh, a fender when you're already late. Or
0: a thief breaking into your home, making off with your new flat screen TV that you just bought on Tatooine.
1: Luckily, there are... More than 19,000
0: agents who are there for you. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. What's going on? Look, up ahead. Binge mode. I heard the locals talking about this filth.
1: Binge mode thinks it contains adult content and spoilers. Well, whatever they call themselves, they best keep their distance.
0: Yeah. Why don't you tell them yourself? And now binge mode. Hey! Ah, I'm awake! I'm awake! Oh,
1: sh- oh. Where is he?
0: Ah, quiet! Oh, sh- it's okay. You woke it up. Do you have any idea how long it took me to get it to sleep? Give him to me. Not so fast. You can't just leave a child all alone like that. You know, you have an awful lot to learn about raising a young one. Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Road Star Wars. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com. Oh! Great freaking website. It's glorious. Joining me today, now that he's finished picking up his do-back, Ringer senior creative, your Jedi master, Jason Concepcion. Cute little do-back.
1: Mal, I'll do it, but watch Isaac. Don't let him get near the bike. He's no good just dead. (laughs) And there's further to go on. Binge Mode Star Wars where we're exploring the wider Star Wars universe from the Skywalker Saga films the anthology films to the Mandalorian plus numerous other facets of a galaxy far, 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 far away leading up to the release of Star Wars Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker in December 20. Oh my God, that's next week. <laughs> please make the journey to Mandalore with us by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and please rate and review us. Give us the five-star ratings or we will send Fennec Shand after you. And then Executor. Boy. In cold blood! <laughs> please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans and which is an excellent place to leave tips for Mando about how to be a better parent. He could use them. It's concerning. And please head to the slash shop to check out our Binge Mode merch. The next best thing to Beskar if you're
0: out on a mission. Last time on Binge Mode. We answered your questions on another Ask the Underscore. And today, we're diving deep, deep into The Mandalorian Chapter Five, The Gunslinger. Woo! As always, spoiler warning. While we know nothing about the future of this show, we will be going deep on details from this episode deep! of The Mandalorian and the entire Star Wars saga. To date, taking official canon and legends, hashtag not canon, into account. So head for Bay 3 5 because. <laughs> Oh my God, we're going back to Tatooine.
1: Mal, if you're looking for work, have a seat, my friend. So we can offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in the fifth episode of The Mandalorian by heading to a podcast studio far, far away and queuing up the opening
0: crawl. We open in space. The Razorcrest is being pursued by another small fighter piloted by a bounty hunter. He's got. Teeth painted on his helmet so you know he means business. Right,
1: he's serious.
0: (laughs) Mando's ship takes several hits, and it is very distressing because Baby Yoda is squeaking and looks alarmed and at one point has to rotate upside down. He's like getting pressed (gasps) against the little bar of his little crib. Extraordinarily upsetting. Mando reverses his engines, sends the hunter's ship flying by, and allows Mando to get the kill shot. That's my line.
1: In need of repairs, he makes for the nearest planet, Tatooine, hmm. in the spaceport <laughs> at Mos Isley, a known hive of scum and villainy. A I've heard that. Good friend once said, "Mando locks L B Y in a utility hold." What? I think it's a little cot,
0: but still, it's a closet. Let's it's not, not sure let's not, let's not overrate it. It's a closet with a cot. He very okay. He nestles him in a blanket like Get a little out. burrito. Gently puts him down on a cot, and then every other decision he makes is wrong. Including closing the door, leaving him alone. If All same. of the rest is awful. And then off
1: he goes, looking for work, because the mechanic, Pelli Motto Hell yeah. is fixing the ship without the help of her droids. Thanks, Mando. Which is, again, unwise. Like, I get it. He's traumatized. But, like, I think you got to draw the line somewhere at different kinds of droids. Oh, it's
0: fine when they help him. But when they help other people, it's not okay. These droids
1: are two and a half feet tall. All they want to do is fix a ship.
0: That's Stay tuned it. for more Just, on pit droids. Yeah. A sudden noise from the Razor Crest startles the mechanic and her droids. Mid card game. Hello, Sabak. Jason, I'll raise you three bolts and a motivator. I don't even, I still don't know how it works. <laughs> Out comes oh, baby Yoda. Oh, he's lonely. Tottering down the ramp, looking extraordinarily sad and sleepy. He woke up for his nap. Where's dad? Peli earns our affection right away here, picks him up, speaks warmly to him has her droids fetch him some food. She plans to babysit and then charge Mando extra for her services, which, you know, she earned
1: it. Mando walks into a familiar canteen at Chalman's. Site of your spinoff show. That's right. However, the business has clearly changed hands as a now a droid tens bar, when formerly they were not allowed inside. Nope. Mando tells it that he's an independent hunter looking for a gig, and he's overheard by another hunter by the name of Toro Calican extremely Joey Lawrence energy, who shows Mando a puck for Fennec Shand. Mando knows of her and wants no part of it. She's an elite mercenary and an assassin. Toro, desperate, offers Mando the entire reward for his assistance. This is his first job and his one shot to get into the guild, and Mando agrees. He tells Toro to meet him with two speeders and to give over the fob. Instead, Toro smashes it,
0: which is confusing. All of it is. Mando, what are you doing? Toro meets Mando with the speeder bikes and the two head out across the dune sea. Beautiful. Incredible. Beautiful stretch of the episode, stunning. After a brief pause to barter with the Tuscan raiders. they find a dewback. The rider... dead. Yeah. Tough way to go being dragged by your dewback through the dune sea. Breathing mask still on. It was a bounty hunter. And Fob is still on the body. And it's blinking. The target is nearby. Mando's instincts kick in and just in time. The shots are coming from Fennec. He makes a run for it, and only his quick thinking in his best car keeps him alive. He's hit once and then twice by the sniper bolts fired from a hidden position across the ridge.
1: Mando knows that Fennec will be watching through her scope. The duo waits until nightfall and then races on their speeders towards Fennec's position, alternating flash charge bursts to keep the sniper blinded. And it almost works. They've closed a good portion of the distance when Fennec snipes Mando's bike out from under him. He lets off another flash. Saving Toro, who engages Fennec in hand-to-hand combat, but she's as dangerous as her reputation and is about to break the younger hunter's arm when Mando arrives on the scene to take control.
0: With Fennec at hand and only one working speeder, transportation is a problem. They're in the Dune Sea. After a brief argument, but like too brief, too brief of an argument, Mando (laughs) agrees to walk off and find the riderless back. And while he's away, Fennec gets in Toro's ear. She tells him that a Mandalorian betrayed the guild on Navarro, giving us a name at last for the client's planet, and absconded with a high-value target rumored to be a child. And even Toro, dumb as the fucking sand on which he's walking, is like, I saw him with a kid. Mando, don't let other bounty hunters see the kid. What are you doing, guy? Well, get to all Oh, of my this. God! It's it befuddling. <laughs> Turn on the Mandalorian, she tells Toro. And the guild will welcome you with open arms. You'll be a legend. Tor's like, great idea. So good, in fact, that
1: uh, why do I need you
0: yeah. anymore? And he shoots her and he rides
1: off. Cool guy. Sometime later, Mando arrives on the duback to find Fennec's body. Realizing that this means LBY is likely in danger, he this rides is... at an
0: extremely slow duback pace. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> a. OG Yoda level delay in revelation here from Mando. Just very what are we doing? Come on, my guy. Arriving that night at the hangar, Mando finds Toro, of course, yes. holding Baby Yoda and Pelly hostage at blaster point. It is horrifying to see. We just said last episode, don't show us Baby Yoda and Barrel again. And here it was twice in this episode. Toro holding Baby Yoda takes the opportunity to monologue, helpfully, allowing Mando. Thank God! <laughs> <laughs> to show Peli that he's got a plan, he's got that extra flash charge and he's gonna use it. Sets it off briefly, blinds Toro. Mando gets the angle on the stun bounty hunter, shoots him dead. However, horrifyingly, Toro was holding Baby Yoda when he fell. It's crazy. And shit. poor Baby Yoda, after this traumatic experience, has to skitter off behind like a wicker basket. What are we doing? And then only reveal himself. When it's safe, and then who does he reach for? Pelly, of course. He's mad at dad right now. Not He's even mad at dad. When has dad ever held him for an extended period of time it and was, talked to him? It was so gut-wrenching to see him in this danger, and it was so precious and heartwarming when he peeked out, and was like, is everything okay? And then when Pelly scoops him up and ner- holds him and says, uh, that was so loud on your big ears. I was like, on the verge of tears, very upsetting. Man, it's just crazy.
1: Mando gives the contents of Toro's purse to Pelly. More than squaring his debt to her. I don't know, I guess. She did, she she did, did a lot. lot. She did a lot. And, she, she and a lot. hopefully Mando learned a lot.
0: <laughs> I dare to dream.
1: <laughs> she implores Mando to be careful with baby Yoda. Come on! Mm. Mando and LBY take off in the Razor Crescent that night.
0: Dun, dun, dun. Someone
1: walks up to Fennec's
0: corpse. Who could it be? We're going to go through all of the possibilities momentarily. Jason. Yes? Take some advice, kid. You want to be a podcaster? I do. Make the best deal for yourself and survive. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's search our feelings and use the force. The defining theme of this episode is the nature of negotiation. Let's start with a few minutes of just big picture talk. Sure. About the episode, about how we felt about it. That's how a lot of people seem to feel about it because this was definitely the most divisive episode of the season so far. We'll go a little deeper here in a second. I think the quickest summation of it is still super fun. Love the way it looks. It is delightful as a Star Wars fan to be back on Tatooine, soak up all the Easter eggs and references. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, you do have to pause and say, is it too much of that at the expense of forward momentum in the plot and the characters acting rationally?
1: Yes. Now, We're forced to ask then, due to the setting, did anything that happened have to happen on Mm Tatooine? Listen, I love it. I love seeing the booth where Han shot Greedo. It's great. I love seeing Chalman's now bartended by a droid. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: You famously love a Tusken Raider. I absolutely love Tusken Raiders. I love learning more about them. I think they're extremely misunderstood. Mando does too. That was nice to see, actually. But- did those things carry too much of the weight of the show in this episode? Mm-hmm. As fun as it was to be back in the sand dunes, did it serve the story in any kind of noticeable way? And the references and nods are super fun, but it felt like it's had too much at the expense of like moving the story forward. If it, it felt a lot like episode two, a chapter two rather, mm-hmm. in that it was a sideways episode. You know, it's a balancing act, creating a show like this and then having to bring in all the things from the past and balance it with new stuff. But we didn't really learn anything about our existing characters, about the plot, about the people who are going to play, we think, meaningful roles moving forward. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think we would both agree that we moved backwards or at least didn't move forwards in in ways that felt natural.
0: Yeah, and I think specifically one of the ways that we regressed is in terms of maybe trusting Mando to act rationally or for us to at least, even if we don't agree with the decisions that he's making, to understand them. And I think one of the the Chapter 2, Chapter 5 comp is definitely right. I think there are a couple main differences, though. Yes. The first is that Chapter 2 is Chapter 2. Right. And chapter 5 <laughs> is Chapter 5, and it's only an eight-episode season. He's had
1: more experience with LBY. He has, at this point, decided not to give LBY to right. uh, the client.
0: You would assume he has some kind of more stable bond with the child at this yeah, point. Yeah. And also, just from the perspective of the people creating the show yeah. and what we we're learning in each episode, it's a little easier to say, okay, the first couple episodes of the season, when we're getting our bearings that are establishing what this is. Now we know we're more than halfway through at this point, And you have to pause at a certain point and look at it and say, there are only three episodes left. We haven't met Moff Gideon, you know, yeah. who we assume and maybe wrongly, but assume is going to be the big bad of the season. You know, we have all these characters like Karga, Cara Dune, the client, Pershing, who we think have to come back into the story still. We have so much to learn about Baby Yoda and Mando and the Mandalorian ways and all of it still. And we didn't get any of that. Chapter two, at least, we got the massive reveal that Baby Yoda could use the Force. There was nothing comparable to that here. So, like, the callbacks, the Easter eggs, genuinely great. Like, really, 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 I think that we feel this way. I think a lot of, fans who sincerely love Star Wars feel this way. It's thrilling to be yeah, in a Tatooine. thrilling. Tatooine is the most, not only the most famous Star Wars location, it's one of the most iconic settings in all of storytelling. It is really fun. You shout out loud, holy shit, Tatooine, when you see that you're back there. But why? What are we gaining? And it's all just about a balancing act. Just yeah. like everything that the characters are doing and the choices that they're making and how they're behaving, the same thing applies in a macro sense. You know, what's the negotiation that the creators of the show are making with themselves, with each other, and with us as fans as this unfolds. How much of this, and this, is, this applies across Star Wars, that's actually what makes this such a fascinating thing. It's not specific to The Mandalorian. This is always the discussion that we end up having when we're talking about anything that's a new story in the world, an anthology film, basically anything that isn't exactly centrally in the Skywalker saga, and then even then you have it, because what yeah. was the narrative around The Force Awakens? Oh, it's just a new hope again. What is the right way to navigate Giving people the thing that you know they love yeah. and definitely want, and also exploring something new, and then that gets to the fact that you know Dave Filoni wrote and directed The Gunslinger because he is—we've talked about him before on the podcast a few times. You know, he's one of the main stewards of yes. Star Wars storytelling, and particularly Star Wars television. Yeah. Is someone people really admire and trust, and, and really worship in the, in the community? One of the
1: main creative forces behind Clone Wars, Rebels, and Resistance anointed by George Lucas himself because of his fervency and his knowledge of the Star Wars universe. And this episode, the nature of it, the kind of like love letter to A New Hope, it makes a lot of sense coming from Filoni. Yes,
0: definitely. Um,
1: But the flip side is, where's the new stuff? How are we pushing this forward? This is a person who's looked to from fans to kind of digest the important stuff from Star Wars, the characters, the settings, the themes, and then create something new from that digestion of all those themes and things. And the absence of this here has been a source of angst. Ben Lindbergh said in his most recent Ringer piece about The Mandalorian that the episode was more of an homage than a new voice putting its own stamp on Star Wars.
0: I think if you look at the season so far to this point, one of the things that actually stands out about it is that while the germ of it, the seed th- from which the whole idea sprung was basically, and this is obviously extraordinarily reductive, but basically Mandalorian armor looks cool. And John Favreau is interested in learning more about not only that culture, but as he said many times, mm-hmm. the period after the fall of the Empire, the stretch of Star Wars canon that in the primary canon is there's a lot of room to explore in a way that many, many people who aren't as deep into all of the novelizations, the comics, etc., would be new to them. And so you look at the ice planet that we got in Chapter 1, Arvala 7 in Chapter 2, the client's planet, which, again, we just now, in Episode 5, Chapter 5, got the name for mudhorns, all of these creatures that we're seeing for the first time, planets that we're seeing for the first time, new things that we're learning about the Mandalorians, the way, you know, going to Sorgan, seeing all the Krill, all of this was actually new. And so the Mandalorian really seemed to be prizing that. Yeah. And so I think you could really, depending on how you felt about this episode, which, again, was super fun and enjoyable, despite the things that we think are worth assessing and critiquing, you could look at that and say, okay, they're actually showing that they're really committed to exploring the wider galaxy. So a one-episode diversion to a place that people adore, like, chill, basically. And I think that you could also just as reasonably and fairly say, yeah, but the fact that there was that proof of concept, that there was this real, like, spark of excitement for Mm. exploring all these things that had not yet been established in the canon, introducing us to new aspects of the galaxy— that then when you see that Filoni's coming into to direct an episode, you just expect that to elevate even further because his knowledge of Star Wars is so vast. And his love for it is the kind of thing that, of course, would draw him back. Like if someone said to me, you can go make something in the Harry Potter universe, right? right? I'm not going to be like, let me go invent a new school of magic right. and be like, fuck, it's I'm going to un- Hogwarts. Right. Of, co- right. of course, of course. Right. right? So the impulse to go to Tatooine is like totally relatable and normal. I think it's really fun. I think if the characters and Mando, and if we had learned something new about Baby Yoda, if Mando had acted in a way where every single choice he made didn't lead us to say, wait, why is he doing that? We'd be focusing on this less. The thing was that it was all there was to focus on.
1: I think to your point about balancing the setting with new material and is there anything here that necessitated Tatooine to tell the story, I think that there's a way to look at this where the setting makes Mando's decisions even more perplexing. This is a known outlaw haven, uh-huh. a known area for organized crime activities, right. a notorious hive of scum and villainy. Why are you leaving little baby alone Yoda alone in this place uh-huh. with a stranger?
0: Yes. So then, again, in just the big picture sense before we move on, in in a recent interview with The Hollywood Reporter, John Favreau, and this is a a fascinating interview in a a lot of different respects, worth reading, said, quote, there's a very fluid line between what's in the movie theaters and what's on the screen at home. It's very exciting for me because I get to tell stories over the course of several hours and not just within the footprint of one theater-going experience. I think it's only a matter of time before we cross paths the other way. So that is interesting at this moment in time because it speaks broadly to how, again, interconnected all of Star Wars is, and always has been, and will remain and continue to be. This is not a new thing. The platforms, the presence of Disney+, Plus, the introduction of these new live-action shows, the continued exploration of different styles of filmmaking, etc., increases the chance for connectivity. And also increases the chance for us to say, why is this happening in this way, in this place, instead of X, Y, or Z? And ultimately, ultimately, that is really a good and exciting thing. Like, the fact that it won't always be perfect is fine. Part of the fun of it is that we have all of these new ways to access the world that we love. But when they're looking for those connections, it's by definition going to lead to things like this. Well, how can The Mandalorian connect to the primary Star Wars films? And again, we have a new one coming out next week. Well, let's go to Tatooine.
1: Moving forward to The Mandalorian in general with Disney Plus's Star Wars shows, more to come than just The Mandalorian with the Obi-Wan show coming. This is the balancing act. So much of what we love about this story experience so far comes from what we already loved about the world or what had earned our intrigue and made us want to know more. We want to connect with it, but we want to explore something new as well. The galaxy is vast, so let's see more of it. People love Tatooine. They love the spirit of new adventure and trusting that there's a plan to explore those things. In that aforementioned Hollywood Reporter interview, Favreau also said, quote, I'm putting a lot of effort working with Dave Filoni to figure out what the overarching story is and the storyline for all these characters and what the world is like. We want to make sure that we have a roadmap because we are also a puzzle piece that fits into a larger Star Wars universe that has a lot of other movies and a lot of other projects. And we want to make sure we're consistent with them. We have a good 25-year patch of road in the canon. That nobody is exploring right now, and it's the most interesting time for me as a storyteller to explore. The time after the fall of the Empire and before the resurgence of the darker forces. We have three more episodes in season one to get a real feel for what that roadmap and vision is. Only eight episodes, once again, feels like not enough. But it's fine for season one. We'll be satisfied with that for season
0: one. Can't wait to see what the next three episodes bring. And we got to— Very intriguing tease for the rest of the season at the very end, the conclusion of this episode, a cliffhanger,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: a boot and a cape on a person, obviously. (laughs) We don't see who the person is. Approaching Fennec's corpse, though. Put a pin on the word corpse there and we'll return to that in a minute. So let's start at the end of the episode. Let's start with the cliffhanger and who this mystery figure could be because there are... Two primary possibilities, Boba Fett and Moff Gideon, and then a couple other possibilities that we want to consider as well. And the reason that we want to start here at the end is because this was really the one super intriguing, ooh, what could this mean moving forward thing that happened in the episode. So, first possibility, Boba.
1: I love it. Let's go through the reasons. Let's
0: go through the reasons. I think there are really compelling cases for both Boba and Moff Gideon.
1: Number one, in Legends, he is alive. He survived the Sarlacc pit. He Mm -hmm. escaped. That ignominious end for uh, such a great bounty hunter. No stranger to Tatooine has been there plenty of times. Yeah. Recall the discussion about whether he appeared in the shadows of the Mandalorian Covert. In Chapter 1, he might have already appeared in the show. Mm-hmm. And Favreau did say that the show wasn't about Boba. However, yes. that doesn't mean that Boba Fett won't ever be on the show. Right. Plus, That could also be a misdirection.
0: And again, that's part of the negotiation inherent to the premise of the show, tapping into what that armor represents in fans' minds, but also saying we're doing something new with it. And just like Occam's
1: razor, it's a cape. Who do we know that wears a cape?
0: His cape is definitely shorter, though. Sure. Now, it doesn't mean he couldn't have changed capes in all these years. Definitely could have. But the cape is actually, in my mind, a reason it's probably not him.
1: Interesting, because I
0: think his cape is just different and shorter. But the boot spurs are a that's huge, huge, huge point in favor of it being Boba. So the person approaching Fennec has spurs on the boots. You can hear them. Isaac, give us a little bit of the sound of this mystery figure walking. Okay, then. Think back to Empire Strikes Back and the moment when Boba walks in to the dinner scene with Vader. What do you hear? Boba Fett's spurs. Isaac, give us a sound of that now. So that is compelling. Now, it doesn't mean Boba Fett is the only person in the entire fucking galaxy with spurs on his boots, But that's an iconic part of his character. And then that gets back to the fact that the episode is titled The Gunslinger. Now, of course, that applies to many people.
1: Toro, the... It would seem to directly relate to Mando.
0: Yes, and Fennec. Like, people who are out there shooting, whipping guns around. And Toro certainly is a wannabe gunslinger. A lot of the episode is about him trying to establish his bona fides as a gunslinger. But if that is Boba at the end, then the episode name could definitely be a nod to him because... What are his origins? Clint Eastwood in Outer Space. That was a
1: comment made by assistant film director Dwayne Dunham from an official Star Wars YouTube video on the costume recently dug up again by The Hollywood Aww. Reporter. Quote, when Boba Fett walks down the hallway, he goes, ching, ching, ching. <laughs> okay, I so mean, that's pretty notable. huge. Other evidence. You don't see the fob in the shot. You only see the feet and boots up to about like the mid-lower leg and then the cape. But the closed captioning says... Device beeping. Yeah, and you which can hear it. must indicate a fob and thus a bounty hunter. How else would a person locate this body in the mm-hmm. middle of the Dune Sea? Yes,
0: it's it's a reasonable deduction.
1: The quote, she's no good to us deadline from Mando is a callback to Boba's, he's no good to us dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Empire when he's speaking to Vader about Han Solo, yes. a notable dialogue link, and we'll have more on language callbacks later. And one of the most exciting things about the Boba possibility yes. is that it would be another— Kamino clone tie-in. Yeah, I've am into this. Regarding Pershing and little baby Yoda's plot. Yes. And I think that makes a lot of thematic sense to me, storytelling-wise. Famous
0: clone son, Boba Fett. Come in and talk to baby Yoda and Mando about Kamino. That potential tie-in is hugely compelling here. Okay, second possibility. Moff Gideon, a.k.a. Giancarlo Esposito's incoming... Character in yeah. when when are well, we gonna see him? Who knows? Maybe this was his leg. We're not sure. Okay, so supporting bits of evidence for the Moff Gideon theory: one, the outfit. Go back and watch the trailer. He's very clearly wearing a cape. Color scheme of what he's wearing looks similar to what we see here, and presumably because he's a person in Star Wars wearing a boot, <laughs> wearing yeah. boots. Right. Reasonable to think. So visually, just based on that tiny glimpse that we've gotten of him, this just looks more like the Moth Gideon character, then, like what we know Boba looks like. Now again, maybe Boba changed up his outfit a bit, but color scheme-wise, vibe, all of it would seem to fit Gideon more. Then there's the timing. We've assumed that he was going to reveal himself to be the big bad of the season, so he has to enter the story soon. We're running out of runway here. He is in the episode seven promotional material, so he will be in the show by that point. But... Maybe if he's in the promotional material for Episode 7, it means we've definitely seen him in Episode 6. Thus, the leg in Episode 5 could be him. Then there's the fact that we know, even though we've never met this character, that he travels. Here's Mm -hmm. something that Esposito told IGN at D23. Quote, he's a traveler. He gets around and knows everything and no one knows why. And then, of course, there's his potential connection to the Baby Yoda plot. The biggest bit of evidence we have here.
1: Who hired the client and Dr. Pershing and who were they talking about in the scenes when they were discussing and whispering about the person who hired them? We would assume it would be Moff Gideon, which means presumably he's still after LBY. Why wouldn't he be? Now, the boot wearer, considering the fob, was presumably looking for Fennec, not Mando. But the two do not have to be mutually exclusive. Many people saw Mando go off with Toro in search of Fennec. It absolutely tracks that Mm -hmm. somebody would have tracked Fennec to find Mando. Yes. Now, consider, this is what Toro says to Mando about Fennec. Quote, Fennec Shand, an assassin, heard she's been on the run ever since the New Republic put all her employers in Mm -hmm. lockdown. So who are her employers? We know, per Mando, that she worked for the crime syndicates. Uh So if the New Republic got all of her old bosses, maybe she went to work for the remnant instead, or maybe— the New Republic is persecuting her old bosses in part because they had imperial ties. Uh-huh. The syndicates and the Empire work together a lot. Yeah. Regardless, it doesn't mean that the New Republic got everyone who had or could employ her. So maybe Moff Gideon eluded the grasp uh-huh. of the New Republic and maybe he had hired or wanted to hire Fennec for whatever game he's running, perhaps looking for LBY. Fennec's recruitment pitch to Toro included the line, quote, look, There's still time to make my rendezvous in Moss Espa. Take me to it, and I can pay you double the price on my head. Who is she going to
0: meet? Yes, so that quote is obviously key. It tells us two things. One, she's meeting someone with means. She's confident that that person will be able to double the bounty and pay Toro for delivering her. This isn't just some, like, schmuck grabbing a pint at Chalman's, right? Two, the person she's meeting is either a partner Or her employer, someone who would have the motivation to try to save her, to try to barter and negotiate for her life in that circumstance. We know that she's been hiding on Tatooine. This is her rescue, this is her escape. So it's reasonable to think that after she missed the rendezvous, that would be the person. The person that she was meeting would be the person who would come to look for her. It's more likely that she's meeting a person like Gideon who would want to hire her for her services than that she'd be meeting someone like Boba. It's more likely. Now, again, the fob there would be a complication, but maybe he took a fob off a bounty hunter he killed to go try to find her. Who knows? Any number of circumstances could come into play there. Plus, remember Fennec's earlier line to Mando. Quote, a Mandalorian, it's been a long time since I've seen one of your kind ever been to Navarro. I hear things didn't go so well there, but it looks like you got off easy. So that's another key line here because the fact that she knows what happened on Navarro, especially while she was out on the run, at that time, tells us that she's tapped in to people on that planet with connections there, like, say, the client's presumed boss, Moff Gideon, or others who are connected in some way to the hunt for Baby Yoda. Is there any evidence against it being him?
1: Sure. Mando walking down the street passes about a dozen or so Stormtrooper helmets, perhaps with the heads still in them, on spikes. (laughs) A... Powerful visual at the feelings that the locals have towards Imperial forces at this particular mm-hmm. time. Would the natives or whoever of Tatooine, the inhabitants of Tatooine, be so bold if someone like Moff Gideon was on the planet? Right. And now certainly he could quite possibly be there in secret. But we do see him in the company of stormtroopers in the trailer. Yes. Um. It's a really interesting point. You know, like Tatooine is supposed to be this place where neither the New Republic nor the Empire ever really made successful inroads. It was always at the edge of law, beyond law. So for the inhabitants here to so strongly mm-hmm. go against former imperial forces, I think that says a lot about the attitudes towards the Empire totally. across the universe.
0: Didn't want the troopers just moseying through. Yeah, yeah. The cantina anymore jamming up business, but there is no business. So now
1: of course there are other possibilities. What about our guy Grief Carmando?
0: Could be him. Yes. Does wear a cape like thing. What would yes, you call that? A, well, I don't know. It's a very unique outfit. It's like a, mini cape, like a, a capelet. It's basically a vest
1: with a kit with a but the with yeah, the comes down long. like wings. It's great. Yeah. Uh great look. Listen, Mando betrayed the guild. We would yes. assume that Grief Karga has both business and personal reasons mm-hmm. to go after yeah, Mando Mando shot at this point. him
0: in the chest.
1: Yes. The tease for episode eight is, quote, the Mandalorian comes face to face with an unexpected enemy, which, listen, could be, could many, be any number. many, many, many people. But if he thinks he killed Karga, could be a tease for Karga in episode eight. Right. Could it be the bounty hunter that Bill Burr
0: is playing? Another character who is in the trailer, who we know is coming in the show and we have not seen yet. It's possible, though— We don't really know what his allegiance is going
1: to be. Ryan Airy from Screen Crush put forward this theory. What if it's Cobb Vanth? Interesting. In the the Aftermath books, Vanth acquires a set of Mandalorian armor and Tatooine. Sheriff. With the spurs that would kind of track with the spurs. What about someone else? There are plenty of new characters right. coming our way, but with only three episodes left, it feels like, uh, you know, our runway for figuring out who that might be is certainly Yeah,
0: true. it's definitely possible. It's just another person that we don't know is coming yet, but the fact that it was positioned the way it was as a cliffhanger at the end of the episode certainly seems to indicate that it's someone we're going to know yeah. or someone we've been waiting for. All right, let's talk about the rest of the episode. So, a few new characters and new performers. We got Pelly Amy Sedaris, wonderful. Truly <laughs> really yeah. a delight in this episode. Fennec Shan, Ming-Na Wen. We're going to come back to the, the death and whether there's a chance, however remote, that yeah. Fennec might be with us still because this is kind of, on the one hand, it's Star Wars, you can't get attached to people. On the other hand, it seemed like Ming-Na Wen was going to be a part of the show, it, so it's disappointing. It is certainly
1: strange to cast Ming-Na Wen and then have her in the trailer in the way that she, that her character was, or in some of the promotional materials, and then be like, she's dead after a few minutes? Yeah. Strange. Very strange.
0: And then there was Toro Calicam, Jake Cannavale, Bobby's son. Unbelievable. <laughs> he, his- has a, he has a lot of Bobby Cannavale energy as oh, well. yeah. I can definitely see him snorting coke in a Scorsese production yes. one day. So let's start with the big question from the episode, yes, other please. than who was that at the end. What the hell is Mando doing? There are a lot of subsets of this question, and so we're just going to go question by question to assess the various aspects of his distressing decision-making. the first and most important, obviously, for us is what is he thinking leaving Baby Yoda alone multiple times in this episode?
1: Now, the charitable way to read Mando's actions here would be, hey, tough upbringing, orphan, doesn't know how to create familial ties, doesn't have any like familial ties of his own, his parents, you know, it's like killed, we assume, early on in his life. That, though, wouldn't totally explain his actions considering that he knows that little baby Yoda is a person or, you know, in colder terms, an asset that a lot of people are looking for. Mm -hmm. Why leave him alone Numerous times. So let's start in space, however. Yes. Absolutely gut-wrenching to watch little oh. baby Yoda get thrown around in his little crib as Mando is like dog fighting with this bounty hunter. But I think Seven. that was a good tone setter to let us know, you know, people are going to be coming for Mando now. Not
0: mm-hmm. just because of the asset, but because of what he has done to the guild. Right. Um, Which of course he knows already because of everything that happened on Sorgan yes. and in the prior episode at the end. <laughs> Part of what makes this also troubling. Now,
1: land on Mos Eisley. First thing that Mando does is he takes little baby Yoda, who is dozing now,
0: needs a nap, needs a little needs nap, needs his rest, needs his rest. A young, developing fifty-year-old who. <laughs> Every now and then needs a midday nap after a stressful aerial battle. And he's among us?
1: He is 50. So therefore, what Mando does is place him on a cot in what we assume is Mando's sleeping quarters, mm-hmm. which is like a very Spartan uh, yes. setup. boy.
0: And boy, then closes the door. Mando is not invested in a nice comforter, a duvet, extra pillows, any of it.
1: Now, there are a lot of things he could have done here, but I would just like to put this option forward. Why don't you just sit there for a little while yeah. while your ship is being fixed and, mm-hmm. and little Baby Yoda is sleeping? Just hang out.
0: I agree. And if the concern is that they're very, very, very much on the clock because they know that there are people pursuing them, which we're gonna again parse all of this, go and take a job that might take you days. Yeah, none of the decisions align with each other. That's part of the problem. So, yes, you need money. Of course, you need to repair. We the ship. all do. You got the the fancy. Baskar armor, okay, you're not carrying a lot of spare cash, life on the run, didn't bring any krill with you, fine.
1: And you made the somewhat unwise, but I guess understandable decision to demand that droids not be used in the repair of your ship, thus juicing the price.
0: And making it take longer. Fine. (laughs) For sure it's going to take longer, okay. Okay, but, (laughs) but. As Jason said earlier, you're in a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Yes. And you know it. You know it. You know, you know it. Mando has awareness about places in the galaxy. Like in that sense, Tatooine is a known place. Don't leave your ship again, leaving the Razor Crest. Sure, you're leaving it at a repair station, but you're leaving your kid on board this time. You're negotiating a repair contract with Pelly. Okay. You've engaged in a conversation, you're getting a feel for someone, what's the vibe? What is this person motivated by? But that doesn't mean that you know or can trust someone because you've had one conversation about the carbon scoring on yeah. your vessel. I've got 500 imperial credits, he says. That's all you got? Well, what do you think? She's talking to the Pitcheroids at this point. That should at least cover the hanger. I'll get you your money. Now, of course, we want Pelly to get every cent that, that she deserves. Absolutely. Pelly's a delight. Yeah, And it is actually, in terms of us appreciating Mando's kind of moral fiber it's heartening to see him be honorable. He's not looking to swindle her. Sincerely not, right? But it is really fascinating to see how the necessities of the situation that he's in, not just here, that's amplified here, but really at any given moment, dictate completely the choices that he makes. Who he trusts, how he's willing to trust them, what he's willing to do, the action that he takes directly, the action that he asks other people to take. It's not His instinct to trust other people, but he is actually quite prone, as we've seen time and time again now, to striking some sort of deal, putting his faith in any number of ways in other people when he needs to. And sometimes that's a great thing, like with Kara, or ultimately approved in this episode, like with Peli. But sometimes it's not like with Toro, who we'll get to in a few minutes.
1: And I think you've hit on something important here, which is like, you know, we're still learning about this character who is mm-hmm. extremely taciturn. Most of what we learn from him is through his interactions with other people, not so much his dialogue, his actions. And that's why it's so confounding when he does things that are so out of left field, seemingly. Of course, little baby Yoda wakes up. He's not going to sleep for 10 hours. <sighs> he is 50, but he's not going to sleep for 10 hours. Not
0: every nap is a post-force nap, by the way. Man, so no. he...
1: We would assume Force opens the door Mm -hmm. to the sleeping quarters, which is the sound that Peli and her droids hear. And then comes tottering
0: up to the ramp. Doing his best Obi-Wan. Out with the Tusken Raiders impression.
1: Still with little nappies in his eyes and pillow marks on his face. He looks so cute. He's so
0: precious. This was so precious.
1: And that piano music starts up and immediately puts you at ease because... Thank God we cannot take another moment of Baby Yoda being in danger once again, and this time without his main protector there. Did that bounty hunter leave you all alone in that big, nasty <laughs> ship? Amazing. Now, would you like some food? Are you hungry? I love Fish, this. Fix something to eat, quick. I don't know, something with bones in it. Bones Amazing. in it is, is strange, but that's okay. <laughs> so Mano's first exposure to Peli was haggling with her over uh, repair prices for his ship Because, of course, he just wants something done without droids. The nature of the repairs. The the nature of the repairs. But here is, all of a sudden, Peli employing her droids to help care for this very special person, we assume, in Mando's life. That's right. Side note. There needs to be some lines of consistency with Mando's trauma surrounding droids. He doesn't like them. We get it. B2 battle droids killed his parents. However, he is willing to get on droid-driven carts to travel across Sorgan, Mm -hmm. weird one, and Navarro, okay?
0: Desperate times in that That was
1: desperate, okay? But he won't allow droids to help fix his ship when he's not there.
0: Not even that, to help this other person, like a solitary mechanic trying to repair an entire vessel. He's just making it harder on her. Again, he's not there. It's like, whatever she's doing, she's doing. Like, droids... He doesn't tr- every. Dro- not trust them to be near his ship, but like Find, it's the way of life in the galaxy. That's what I. Yeah. That's the thing. Droids
1: are interwoven with every aspect of life in the galaxy. Yeah, they are working behind the scenes to do everything. Mm-hmm. How can you assume that work that you are then reaping the benefits of is not?
0: Being produced by droids, you can't. That's part of the negotiation that he is consistently undergoing just in everyday life in the galaxy. And, of course, now in these extraordinary circumstances, mere moments from the point when he tells Pelly not to let the droids touch a ship. He's like, hey, droid, you got any work for me? Yeah, I, you think he'd walk
1: in and be like, okay, I'm not going to speak to the droid. I'll speak to any number of right. other creatures in
0: this bar no. and look for work. No, he's on the clock there, so it's okay. Return we
1: go after a word from our sponsors. Binge Star Wars. It's presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Like a fender bender when you're already late. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you.
0: Talk to one of our 19,000 State Farm agents today via text, over the phone, in person, or using the State Farm app.
1: Find one today at statefarm.com.
0: Today's show is also brought to you by the Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice. In the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. Hey, Google. How far away is the moon? The moon is about 238,900 miles from Earth. A little help, hands-free. Just say, hey, Google, to get started. And now back to Mitchell. Before Pelly falls in love with Baby Yoda. (sighs) How could she not? Again.
1: I'm at the point now where everyone that gets to hold little Baby Yoda, I'm mad at. She was Because why don't
0: I get to- I know. I'm like, I'm jealous. She was such an avatar for the audience, so it's like, of course she would immediately be totally taken with this beautiful little creature of love. Before that, though, she says this to him. Now, here's the plan. I'm going to look after you until the Mandalorian gets back and then I'm going to charge him extra for watching you. You see how that works? Yeah, bright eyes? Again, get what's yours, Pelly. But also, even when you're just looking at this precious little thing, in the galaxy, you're thinking about what you can get out of it. Everyone is looking, at least at first, before you develop a real bond with someone or something, for that edge. It's Tatooine. It's life after Endor, after the Empire's Fall. Credits at a scarcity everywhere. We're seeing that repeatedly. We're a team, she says. It's not a nefarious thing in this moment. It's just about not even staying ahead, trying to stay afloat. And then Mando panics when he gets back and sees the razor crest open, Baby Yoda gone. And on the one hand, it is actually really endearing. It's a reminder again of how much he cares, how much affection he's developed for Baby Yoda. And it's also, we hope, a teachable moment for him. He should learn from this. Yes. Except. Except (laughs) Yeah, except. (laughs) He doesn't because he then immediately leaves again. So when Pelly, who reveals herself to be an angel on Tatooine. Are you an angel? <laughs> and again, an avatar for us rightly scolds Mando for leaving him alone, saying, When Mando says, Give him to me, she says, Not so fast. You can't just leave a child all alone like that. You have an awful lot to learn about raising a young one. Mando sweetly thanks her and then immediately leaves again. Now, yes, this time, <sighs> Peli has proven that she is a kind person, right? Wonderful soul, trustworthy ally. But Mando doesn't know that yet. That will reveal itself further at the end of the episode. He just knows that she didn't immediately harm baby Yoda in the time that they were together unattended. She doesn't know who she is. He doesn't know if other people, bounty hunters, or, or any other number of nefarious souls could come in and try to do what eventually happens, either try to harm her or... Try to convert her in some way. He doesn't know what her ultimate agenda is. He doesn't know anything, and he also isn't like, "Hey, is it okay with you if you watch the kid overnight?" Right. There's no consent. A lot of presumption, no asking. It is, of
1: course, panic-inducing to watch little baby Yoda in any kind of peril. Terrible, and it's clearly a thing that the show is aware of. It happens several times in the beginning at the during the dogfight in space, yes. and at the end. When Toro is carrying little Horrible. baby Yoda and speech fighting, and then Mando sets off the flare, causing Toro to shoot wildly at the ground, and then Mando slipping to Toro's side and then shooting him while he's holding baby Yoda, while he is holding
0: baby Yoda, causing him to topple, Terrible. seemingly onto the child, yes. off a ramp onto baby Yoda, horrifying. What are we
1: doing? Peli, again, to her absolutely undying credit, risked her life to protect Little Baby Yoda and Mando to his at this point after they wound up in a situation that they absolutely should not have been in. Did all he could to get Little Baby Yoda back to safety, sneaking a flash charge into the fight, gunning down Toro. Little Baby Yoda scooted away and hid, popping up behind a barrel so sweetly. The way he, like, Reaches up for Pelly when she's like, There you are, and he's like, Yeah, and then his little, his little claw hand is so like cute. reaching up. So, so are you sweet. hiding from us, huh? Look at you, that's all right. I know that was really loud for your big old ears, wasn't it? Okay, shh. also the way she like plays with his ears I know, when and, like, he rubs look, his forehead. Oh my god, that's so
0: sweet. Mando
1: is extremely lucky, he got lucky. About four or five times in this episode. Yes. And extremely lucky after this incident that little baby Yoda was not hurt. But he was definitely afraid yeah. and definitely sad yeah. and certainly traumatized. Like we've seen plenty of times over the course of this series, little baby Yoda be traumatized by violence. And now he has witnessed violence happen to him Directly. right there when he's like a foot away. What is Mando's plan to keep him safe and comforted Great to give question. him the things he needs that a child needs. <laughs>
0: Great question. Be
1: careful with him, Pelly says when Thank she hands God. him back over. Listen, from your mouth to God's ears and to little baby Yoda's gigantic ears, <laughs> we hope that Mando
0: learns his I'm lesson. I'm glad that Mando's hearing this from people. A couple big picture baby Yoda specific notes before we talk about Toro and Fennec. Separating Mando and baby Yoda for the bulk of the episode— it feels like a mistake. You know, their bond is the heart of the show. Now, we've said, oh, well, we need to see character development outside of just our love for Baby Yoda. But when you see them apart, you realize, maybe we don't, actually. Maybe we just need <laughs> to see them together. You know, seeing Baby Yoda and Peli together was really wonderful because you see the effect, much like last episode with Omer on Winter, you see the effect that he has on other people. And it's like, of course, this is wonderful, really marvelous, remarkable thing— We could just watch Baby Yoda for the entire episode and be totally content. But in terms of Mando and his development, when he is apart from Baby Yoda, it doesn't actually allow us to appreciate him more on his own. It just deprives us of seeing the way he grows through his bond with Baby Yoda.
1: I have a theory. You Let me know what you think. I think we're seeing a little bit of a ghost Game of Thrones situation here, where it was like, maybe it just wasn't technologically feasible because I think there's a certain amount of CG involved in Baby Yoda, and I don't, I don't know all the things that the puppet can do and how many of them they have. But, uh, you know, with the speeder bike mm-hmm. segment, how much of this do you think was just like, from a technical standpoint, it's not feasible to have little Baby Yoda in as many shots as you would imagine would be necessary to tell the story of Mando taking Lil Baby Yoda with him everywhere he goes?
0: Definitely possible, and also, frankly, if he had taken him with him and he was wearing a little Baby Yoda backpack scooting across the Dune Sea in his speeder bike taking sniper bolts from Fennec, we would have been sitting here saying, Mando, how do you you bring him into harm's way? Like, we should be self-aware enough to acknowledge that we would still be critiquing it then. That's part of the conundrum, is how do you keep this beautiful thing safe and lead your life, but... I think it's less about whether he's with him and not with him and more about whether Mando is properly assessing the situation and the stakes in his own decision-making at any given moment in time, which he's not. I think in terms of whether the puppet can do everything they need it to do. So far, it seems like the answer is yes. I mean, it's an interesting point to make, but I don't know. That thing is just, a, again, like the greatest achievement in recorded human <laughs> history. I'm in awe. Speaking of Baby Yoda and the character more so than the puppet, it's unclear still to us yes. at this point in the story— when and how Baby Yoda can use the Force. He was in, in mortal peril here. You know, so was Mando, which is, in that sense, as you noted earlier, similar to the circumstances in episode two, chapter two, when he did unleash the Force. Episode three, they were in mortal peril, and he didn't, though he had been through a direct traumatic situation there regarding the experimentation at the, Dr. Pershing's lab. Episode four, the village is under attack. You know, we've seen him and the people around him in real harm's way multiple times since he's used the Force and he has not used it again. So it's starting to look increasingly likely that the mudhorn scene when baby Yoda used the Force in episode two is maybe the first and possibly only time that he's ever used it in that fashion in his life. It's not something that at this point yet he's able to just call on routinely. Maybe something that happened at the lab in chapter three has in some way stifled or suppressed Yeah. His force power, we obviously have no idea if that's true at that point, but regardless of that, why isn't Mando more curious about this yeah, part of the character?
1: It's a, great, it's a great question. Why
0: isn't he wondering what Baby Hoda can do? Why isn't he trying to talk to him about it? You know, he obviously thinks he can listen because he keeps giving him instructions to stay put. He's seen the power firsthand. He knows the Pershing and the client were experimenting on him, covet him. He knows everyone's after him. And on the one hand, I think it's a, there's a quality where it's, it's actually quite refreshing that he just wants to let him be a kid, right? Just wants to let him live. Doesn't want to focus on his abilities or commodify it in any sense. But on the other hand, where's the curiosity? Yeah,
1: it's very, very concerning. We don't—it's hard to get a gauge on how much time passes between episodes. Yeah. But you would hope, and at least like to see communicated in the episodes, that Mando is— engaging with little baby Yoda and trying to figure out like what it is that he's capable of. Now, speaking of little baby Yoda, which we could do forever, um, (laughs) Favreau said in that aforementioned Hollywood Reporter interview, quote, we learn more about him over the course of the season. Good. Mm -hmm. I think what's great about what George created is that Yoda proper, the character that we grew up watching, was always shrouded in mystery. And that was what made him so archetypal and so mythic. We know who he is based on his behavior and what he stands for, but we don't know a lot of details about where he comes from or his species. I think that's why people are so curious about this little one of the same species. Absolutely right.
0: Definitely true. Okay, so another Mando question here, which is what led to uh, asking all those other questions about Baby Yoda. Why does he go to Tatooine in the first place Mm -hmm. with a bounty hunter on his tail? Of course, we know that his ship (laughs) took damage and he needed to land and get it repaired, but why Tatooine? So the battle with the pursuing bounty hunter that damages the razor crest leads to the fuel leak that then requires the major repairs and the landing makes that instant landing necessary. But unless the editing of the episode made the passage of time and and literal parsecs of space unclear to us in some way, it seems like that's where Mando was, right? He's landing at the closest possible place. So we know that Mando objects to the other bounty hunter Plagiarizing his, That's my line. <laughs> his warmer gold line, but we don't know if he and Baby Yoda were actually trying to make their way to Tatooine, or if, as it seems, they just had to land there because they were closest and they needed the repairs. But regardless, landing that close to the fight scene, while necessary for the state of the ship, is very, very confusing because a bounty hunter being on his tail that close to the planet should have Mando worried that other bounty hunters are also aware of his location and could be on his way, could be pursuing him. Maybe that bounty hunter shared his location. Maybe the fact that that bounty hunter found him means other people could too. We don't know how much time has passed since they left Sorgen, by the way. So was this guy on his tail from there? Did he find him somewhere along the way? We don't have any of this information so we don't know how Mando is processing whether shooting that guy out of the sky means they're safe. He knows. That's why they had to leave Sorgen in the I first place. Is- Everybody's after them. Everybody, right?
1: I think that's a great Point because listen, I kind of read it as Mando was going to Tatooine, or else why would he be in the area? Why would he be going to Tatooine? Then you have because to ch- you have re- to change your be- plan then. because he needs money. Why does he need money? Like he didn't need money until he needed the ship repaired, right? So let's put aside everything we've seen this episode. What is Mando doing? Right, last episode, Sanctuary would seem to assume that Mando is looking for a quiet place for he and Baby Yoda to lay up. So why are you in the area of Tatooine? Mm-hmm. Where are you going? What are you doing? What is the plan for you and Baby Yoda? That part of it is really unclear at this moment. Of course, Mando doesn't seem stressed about (laughs) any of the issues related to Tatooine at all, he seems. Or the fact that he has the entire guild coming after him. He seems, in, in fact, pretty casual about it. Now, does Mando perhaps feel comfortable landing on Tatooine because he knows, as a former Bounty Hunters Guild member, that the guild... Doesn't operate there, mm-hmm. as the shaman's bartender tells him. "Rumor, hey droid, I'm a hunter. I'm looking for work." Classic. Hilarious. The droid's no guild line seems like it's there to ask us to yes let Mando off the hook for strolling back into Tatooine and again a known hive of scum Definitely. and villainy. Even so, yeah. he is a bounty hunter and he's out and about looking for work. That's the only line of work he knows. A bounty hunter was just on his tail, guild operation or not. He should know it's possible to run into bounty hunters as he does, literally seconds after his exchange with the droid. Toro IDs himself as such. Yes. Because of Toro, he knows the bounty hunters are on the planet. So it stands to reason that if a hunter with a fob on Fennec is there, a hunter with a fob on little baby Yoda could be there as well. Right. Remember when he asked who had the fobs? Everybody. All, all of, of the them. bounty, All of the bounty hunters. And in, he saw that in Navarro when there was like
0: three dozen bounty hunters yeah. looking to take him down. This part I can't get over. You see that a bounty hunter's there, you have to bounce immediately. You have to. You Not, not only do you have to bounce, you can't, certainly can't align yourself with this person. If he has a puck on Fennec, maybe he has a fob on Baby Yoda. Maybe other people do. I just, that part is galling. Beyond the fobs, though. Beyond the fobs. There's just a risk of recognition. Yeah. Fennec eventually does recognize him in this episode. You know, guild presence or no guild presence, Mando knows that his armor makes him specifically identifiable. We've heard this reinforced time and again. The cargo line in the previously on, at the beginning of this episode about Mando being a legend, feels like it's there as a reminder of yes. his status, of how people know who he is. The armor, of course, in chapter three told Mando that that armor, that Beskar would draw eyes. The client has reminded Mando that it's rare to be able to find a Mandalorian these days. Paz told Mando and us, of course, that the Mandalorians have to live out of sight underground. It's rare to see them out in the world. You would know it if you did. Mando himself told Kara in chapter four that the word of their exploits would travel fast, and it did. A bounty hunter came and found them on Sorgan. He knows, in other words, that he is a walking target everywhere he goes, and that's just him. Everyone's already after baby Yoda. He knows this, which is why he was worried on Sorgan about Baby Yoda staying with him. Remember, before the bounty hunter came and forced them to run, he wanted to leave him there because he knows that he's a mark, too, that life with him is inherently dangerous. So the need for money, the need for ship repairs, that's a real thing. Yes, You got to get through every day in the galaxy. You have to. Mando has to navigate those needs against the risks that are inherent in trying to solve them. It's a negotiation with himself. It's a negotiation with reality. But he's not taking the necessary care or being realistic about how high profile he and Baby Yoda are. He lets Toro see Baby Yoda. I mean, just absolutely see him.
1: Absolutely responsible for that to happen.
0: Crazy! And that just rides off with no consideration. Could he be messaging that information to someone else? There's no accounting for how dangerous that is. He then doesn't blink when Fennec, by commenting on the shootout on Navarro, reveals that she knows who he is. He not only doesn't blink, he leaves her alone. <laughs> It's Absolutely. the bounty silly. hunter who just saw Baby Yoda. Very worrying. Next question.
1: Why does he agree to work with Toro in the first place? This now, is crazy. If you want to excuse all or mostly of the above and say, listen, desperate times, mm-hmm. desperate measures, we need money, we're on the run, et cetera. Okay. But how can you justify the Toro arrangement? Names Toro, Toro Kalken. Might as well be names Dick, Dickhead. <laughs> now, <laughs> I guess you could say, you know, like the guild does specify that when a guild member asks for help, other guild members must give it. We covered that in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Again, Doesn't you're not matter. in the guild anymore. You're on the, you're on the run. You're on the run. The gunslinger, the episode title. And by
0: the way, this guy's not in the guild either. That's right. the whole point. He's so trying like, to what get are we, What are
1: we doing? The gunslinger, the episode title, comes into play in a lot of ways, but the yes. ongoing Star Wars Western connection and homage is among them, including, in this case, this young fellow who can't wait to make his name. Han wannabe in Han's booth. It's like Han
0: cosplay. Totally. <laughs> Which is effective in the sense that any association with Han makes you think someone's going to be cool and good. And this guy really uh, really is fails not. to live up to that.
1: And now, how does Mando fail to read the signs that Toro will double-cross him? And by the way, they are everywhere.
0: Yes. This is I- key. I-
1: I- <laughs> lied. About his station right off the bat. Yep. Smash the fob, which we will get into issues regarding how it's possible to memorize fob information. Just in terms of his character, red flag. Smash the fob. This is the most troubling red flag. (laughs) As Mando slept, (laughs) he pulled his blaster. Oh, man. And mime shot Mando. Sleep on the job, old man. (laughs)
0: <laughs> like, what What more do you need? He it, pulled his gun on you. It played for comedy in the moment because Mando has that great, you done bit, but it's like, that's uh, concerning. Yeah, a, a bounty hunter just pulled yeah, his gun on you. Are you done with uh, this yeah, asshole? I know.
1: He spoke disparagingly of Tuskens, clearly signaling that he doesn't know where he is, doesn't know how to read situations, didn't listen to Mando's instructions about how to execute the flash charges, wouldn't leave Mando alone with the bounty, list goes on and on and on and on and on. And again, Mando's isolated existence and need for resources could and should lead him to risky situations. Mm -hmm. But all the signs point to Toro being an absolute shithead who should not be trusted (laughs) under any situations. And it bears repeating again. Mando knows this guy is a bounty hunter who is trying to get into the guild that Mando betrayed and is now hunting with everything they have.
0: Can't get over it. And
1: that this bounty hunter, who again is trying to get into the guild, saw little baby Yoda. What are we doing?
0: I'm at a loss, honestly. Speaking of the tracking fobs, for a second. Yes, thank you. They're growing more confusing, not less. Yes. How did Toro memorize that? And maybe he was just kidding. Right? Maybe he's just being a dummy. Oh, I've I've memorized it and doesn't understand that the target might move and you need it. Maybe it's just one more sign that he's an actual idiot. But there's also the moment where he makes it sound like he followed the fob from some distance away. I quote, I follow this tracking fob here. From where, right? Right. When does it activate? At what point does it tell you where you need to go? Now the positional data suggests she's headed out beyond the Dune Sea, he says. So that's, I mean, they're going to take speeder bikes some way and he's already able to say from that far away exactly where it is. This is, we're continuing to see clarity here and not getting it. Also, in the big picture Toro sense here, if Toro, even if he never flipped, let's play out the string here on a situation where he ends up being a trustworthy guy, a good partner. They get the bounty. Wonderful. What's Mando's plan for getting the money from him? Yeah. Because he knows that is going to have to bring the bounty back to Navarro to collect. Mando can't go there. And he also couldn't be foolish enough to expect Toro to go individually, surely learn everything that was happening on that planet, realize who Mando was, and then come back and pay him. So maybe his intention was always just to ask Toro at the end for whatever money he had on his person at that moment in time and then cash out there. Very, very confusing. All right, next question.
1: Why does he take the Fennec job in particular and why does he leave Toro with Fennec? For every reason we just explored, this is absolutely insane.
0: Incomprehensible.
1: Mando tells Toro that, listen, it's an impossible job or at least a a job that's way beyond the young man's ability to complete. And then he changes his mind, not because he's desperate, but because... Toro is. Uh This is my first job. Like, who cares about this guy? Who cares about him? Not me. Let him go out there and die. (laughs) You can keep the money, all of it. I just need this job to get into the guild. And from there, it's meet me at hangar three, five in half an hour with an order for bikes. Mando asked one person, the bartender droid, for work and then immediately took on an assignment so high risk, he told Toro that he'd be dead (laughs) like as soon as he took on the job. Right. What's his contingency plan if he gets hurt for Baby Yoda? And then beyond that, Let Toro know where his ship is parked.
0: All of it is insane. All of it is insane. Meet him in a neutral location. Yeah. Why are you leading him directly to where you're staying? it's actually ludicrous. And then the speeder bike trip through the Dune Sea that ensues from there is, is really stunning. And it is, again, a thrill to see all these Tatooine landmarks we, know we get to go through. Most nicely, we see here on this ride, the Banthas, the Tusken Raiders, the Dubacks. Jason's going to talk about all of them more later. It's a real joy. And we even get a nice reminder that Mando does have this uncommon perspective that not everybody in the galaxy possesses. You know, when Toro says, Tusken Raiders, I heard the locals talking I, about I this, love this filth. Part. I love this part. Mando replies, the Tuscans think they're locals. Everyone else is just trespassing. Like, yeah. this, is a, this is a good person in some respects yeah. and someone with a deep and rich soul and the willingness to understand other ways of life because, of course, of his own life. And then he brokers a deal with the Tuscans. He uses their sign language, their way of communicating to help this. understand what they want. He secures passage for them across the Dune Sea. What are you doing, Toro says? Negotiating. It's, Impressive in multiple ways here, showing Mando's ability to adjust on the fly, to express empathy, and to do whatever is necessary to move forward. It's when that do-what's-necessary mindset comes at the expense of more than just a pair yeah. of binoculars that we begin to worry.
1: The pursuit of Fennec is similarly impressive. Mando's Beskar armor holds up to blaster bolts, and we get it. This is a really cool way to just indicate like how rare and durable and really amazing wow. this material is, hit me in the Beskar, and at that range, Beskar held up. Wait, I don't have any Beskar, no shit, dumbass. Nope,
0: that was a great moment.
1: <laughs> uh, his plan for approaching on the speeders with the aid of flash charges in order to blind Fennec is quite impressive yeah. when he's dealing with gadgets and battle plans, when he's in the moment, blaster shots are flying around. He is absolutely the cutting-edge, exemplary, well- Worth his reputation. He's like the
0: opposite of Jon Snow.
1: It's so true. Like
0: in the actual battle, what he's designing, yeah. the tactics are exemplary. It's the decision that led him there in the first place that's wrong. With Jon, he was always trying to do the right thing, yeah. always obsessing over what was rational and good. And then when he got out in the battlefield, it's like, wait, that's how you use the dragons?
1: When it comes to gauging what other people are capable of, he's hit or miss. Good instincts with Quill and Kara and Omera yes. and Peli and others, including most of all, Little Baby Yoda. Less so with Toro, Fennec, the client, and Karga, which is troubling because those are the people looking to kill those him. Those are the
0: people he needs to have the right
1: read on. Right. Yes. Regarding the separation from Toro and Fennec. Okay. They need a do-back. They need transportation sure. because one of the bikes got taken out. Sure. Okay. But at what cost? Why does he so willingly go with what Toro suggests?
0: He asked Toro once. Toro complains and whines like a brat, and then Mando's like, okay. That was all it took. I mean, you think he'd come back with,
1: hey, I came with you here. Yes.
0: I took multiple sniper shots
1: in my body to get you to this point. Mm -hmm. I saved your ass when I could have let Fennec tear your arm off and then kept the reward. I could shoot you right now and take her in. So why...
0: Are you There's then? There's no answer. Like what? So you go get the do back. Just go get it. You. What have you done? Some of it with Mando is just the path of least resistance, but yeah. the cost of that is is pretty steep, as we'll see.
1: And doesn't he know that Fennec, who mentioned Navarro to him, in a way that makes it clear she's aware of who he is? Yeah. Certainly knows the position he is vis-a-vis the guild, and it would certainly look to exploit it. Mandalorian, it's been a long time since I've seen one of your kind. Ever been to Navarro? I hear things didn't go so well there, but it looks like you got off Mm -hmm. easy. Doesn't he suspect that she will surely try to leverage this information with Toro? When left alone with him, like, of course, that's the easy play. She's
0: an assassin fighting for her life who's in possession of vital intelligence about who he is. She's obviously going to try to use that to her advantage. And then Toro has proven multiple times that he's not trustworthy. Smashing the fob, all the things you just listed. He won't leave Mando alone. He doesn't actually believe in their partnership. Of course, this is what's going to happen. So what does happen ultimately? She tells Toro everything, and then he turns on her and shoots her. Is Fennec really dead? Certainly seems to be when Mando returns after retrieving the back. she's still apparently dead on the ground. And then later at the end of the episode, when the mysterious figure approaches, also still appears to be dead. So it certainly seems like she's dead. But a couple, even if these are massive, massive reaches, a couple reasons that she could potentially be alive. One, again, the casting. Just assuming that Ming-Na Wen is going to be on the show, is meant to be on the show longer. Two... If it is Boba at the end, it would be a nice double well-actually on people that we've long assumed were dead or have briefly assumed are dead in Fennec's case. And then also recall what IG-11 told us about the fobs at the end of Chapter 1 when they were working their way toward the asset that revealed itself to be Baby Yoda. He indicated that the fobs' functionality at that point in time meant that the target was still alive, that there was some biological indicator there. So if the figure who's approaching gives us that device beeping, caption and the sound of a device beeping and if that is the fob it could indicate that the fob is recognizing a living target so maybe fannock's still alive
1: i would just say then just in terms of like visual storytelling she can't be in the same position that she was when she fell she's got to be moving groaning there's got to be something like give me something don't have her just lay there for what appears to be a day
0: yeah Long time.
1: <laughs> um, now, the casting is a bit of a negotiation with fans. The acting roster is exhilarating. But if everyone cycles through in this extremely, like, quick, rapid churn, that's going to be a little of a, of a bummer. We're assuming Carl Weathers' Carga is a lock to return, right? Definitely. We know Gina Carano's Cara Dune is filming season two. If she's not also in season one again, what about Nick Nolte's Queel?
0: I hope we see Quill Who again. comes
1: back? Who will we see again? With Fennec. Her backstory seems too compelling for her to be gone again. This is just, uh, it's confounding. In an episode that focuses heavily on the idea of being a legend yes. from the Cargo Mando line and previously on to the way Toro falls for Phoenix, your name will be legendary pitch and appeal to its reputation. Mando telling us that Shand is a legend counts for quite a bit. Yeah. He says, Fennex Shand is an elite mercenary. She made her name killing for all the top crime syndicates, including the Hutts. If you go after her, You won't make it past sunrise.
0: Yeah, we're supposed to take her seriously. Of course, her negotiation with Toro against the rising Tatooine dual suns cuts into that legendary status a bit by backfiring and giving Toro the confidence to shoot her. That's good advice, but if I took those binders off you, I'd be a dead man. If the Mandalorian's worth more than you are, well, who wouldn't want to be a legend? So there's no honor among thieves, right? That's an idea that's consistently reinforced, She tried to convince Tora to take her to her rendezvous and earn double the fee. And when she realized that he didn't want the money, she tried to appeal to what his real desire was. Status, reputation, entry, not only just into the guild, but into some sort of sphere of adoration. So bring in Mando, give those on Navarro the vengeance that they're seeking against that traitor. Get what you want. Win on your own. It's not a world... That prioritizes teamwork. That's right. really what this exchange reinforces. Remember what Karga said: they all hate you, Mando, because you're a legend. That's what we heard in chapter three. So many of our Star Wars heroes, whether it's Luke or Rey or anyone in between, they're blessed with a lot of different gifts. Yeah, but one of the truest ones is that they've found friends and allies who want to help them, who want to build them up, not just cut them down and take what's theirs. Not everyone, as we're reminded here, is so lucky. Take some advice, kid, Fennec tells Toro. You want to be a bounty hunter, make the best deal for yourself and survive. The best deal for Mando, and we just have to hope he remembers this, is baby Yoda.
1: Yeah, a couple of things. Well, one main thing. I will need to know why Mando, why he doesn't stick with the covert, why he doesn't stick with his people. Why doesn't he stay with them, as, use them as a base? They've gone somewhere else, presumably safe, safety in numbers. Numerous people here that can look after a little baby Yoda. Why not? work with the new covert as your base of operations. I assume that he will
0: find them again to do just that at some point and that the initial decision not to was simply a desire to keep them safe, you know, knowing that people will be pursuing him and the child, not wanting to put a target on and threaten the covert again. Yeah. And then this is minor
1: compared to that question. Let's paint the armor. Let's go back to the armor and like yeah. paint paint it up. Like get it all chipped up, put a kind of like old-looking paint job on it. Disguise and yourself. Disguise That's
0: yourself that. a little bit. That's a good idea. You should do that. Jason. Yes. What'd you expect? The St. Corillia. You know damn well where it is. Anakin Skywalker's home planet, Luke Skywalkers, too. So now that we've returned to the Dune Sea, please gather the Padawan learners. Head to the Jedi Temple. Teach us everything we need to know about Tatooine. <laughs>
1: Ah, beautiful Tatooine, the desert outer rim planet of Tatooine. Maybe the planet that's farthest from the bright center of the universe, but it plays an outsized role in our story. It is the homeworld of Anakin Skywalker, the homeworld of his son Luke, the hiding place of one of the last of the Jedi Knights, and the former headquarters of the galaxy's most powerful crime lord. It is an unforgiving world. Twin suns tattoo one and tattooed two bake the planet in unrelenting heat. Water is a precious commodity. The native sentient species, Jawas and Tusken Raiders, are a nuisance at best and murderous at worst. As a frontier planet beyond the easy reach of the Republic and later the imperial governments, Tatooine is a draw for settlers looking for a fresh start. Criminals on the run, gangsters, murderers, slavers, some of the worst in the galaxy. To paraphrase, Ben Kenobi, the planet is a hive of scum and villainy. Off-world settlers began arriving in earnest many centuries before we meet young Anakin Skywalker. Long ago, the discovery of metal ores on the planet's surface drew the interest of galactic mining corporations. The corporations abandoned the planet when the ores proved unusable, but some of the boom-time pioneers stayed, and the sand crawlers the company left behind were snapped up by the Jawas, who made them an integral part of their nomadic bartering culture. Jawas, while annoying... Stripping unattended vehicles, (laughs) stealing droids, selling poor quality droids are an essential part of the Tatooine economy. They provide settlers like Owen Lars with goods and equipment they would otherwise not have access to. Tuscan raiders, by contrast, are much more dangerous. As Mando noted, these tribal people consider themselves, rightly, to be the locals, meaning everyone else is an interloper, a trespasser. Tuscans move easily in the punishing environment. And they protect their territory vigorously. Water, being so rare and necessary for survival, is treated as a religious matter. As far as the Tuscans are concerned, their gods decreed that all water on the planet belongs to them. Trizban have been known to attack moisture farms for that very reason. And as we know, raiders fatefully struck Klieglar's farm and carried off Anakin's mother, Shmi. Tuscans are armed with long rifles and heavy metal maces called gaffy sticks, which are custom crafted by each. Warrior. Some notable non sentient inhabitants of Tatooine include the Bantha, mm-hmm. a species of large, hairy, quadrupedal herbivore with two curling horns sprouting from their foreheads. They have a mystical connection with the Tuscan Raiders who use them for transportation and companionship. Crate dragons. These sand dwelling reptiles come in two flavors the larger, greater crate and the smaller, canyon crate. A skeleton of a dragon can be seen in the background of a scene in A New Hope when C-3PO is walking across the dunes. As a rite of passage, Tuscan Raiders have to slay a crate dragon in order to retrieve from its corpse a pearl which the dragon's bodies create, the Sarlacc Pit. This carnivorous predator of opportunity lives deep in a ravine known as the Great Pit of Carcoon in the Dune Sea. Its massive, 100-meter-tall body is buried under the sands, only its huge mouth with rows of spiky teeth and several grasping tentacles is visible. Any animal unlucky enough to fall into this maw would be immobilized by a toxin and then digested over the course of a thousand years. Rough. Rough. This creature was the late Jabba the Hutt's favorite method of execution, and he considered a pet.
0: Yeah, Boba's favorite method of looking like a fucking asshole. (laughs) There's a few points of interest on Tatooine
1: that the discerning Traver or the the Ruthless Gangster or the Exiled Fugitive simply must see. How about Mos Espa? Can't miss it. Located on the edge of the Dune Sea in a canyon called Zelric Draw, is Mos Espa, a city of single-floor stone desert dwellings. The city's economy is mainly based on Gambling and trade, much of it illicit, in the pre-Empire days, off-world entrepreneurs would flock to Mos Espa in order to avoid paying taxes and tariffs. However, the taxes extracted by the controlling Hut clan and their ubiquitous gambling establishments meant that travelers very rarely ended up saving money on the deal. The city is Anakin Skywalker's hometown and the home of the Mos Espa Grand Arena, which seats over 100,000 pod racing fans and gambling addicts. Mm. Moss Isley Spaceport. Jabba the Hutt shifted his operations to Moss Isley after the rise of the Empire, and it's a bit easy to see why the city is situated southeast of the Jundland Wastes, close to the late crime lord's palace. The constant flow of off-world travelers makes the spaceport a haven for smugglers, many of whom gather at the Moss Isley Cantina. Mando, take note. <laughs> many of whom gather at the Moss Isley Cantina for refreshment. Numerous notable figures, including Han Solo, Chewbacca. Luke Skywalker, Ben Kenobi, Asajj Ventures, Greedo, and now the Mandalorian have graced its gritty interior. Jabba the Hutt's palace. On an outcrop overlooking the Dune Sea sits the round iron walls and towers of the fortress that was once home to the most powerful gangster in the galaxy. From here, Jabba presided over his vast crime network, held endless bacchanals complete with dancers and live music provided by the Max Rebo Band, and, of course, had the occasional rancor feeding. Ben Kenobi's hut in the Dune Sea on a bluff sits a humble, domed residence once owned by a moisture prospector and later home to one of the last living Jedi Knights. Ben? Ben? Old Ben. I think it's the same guy. (laughs) Ben took Luke here in A New Hope, told him about the Force, told him about the Jedi, gave him his father's lightsaber, and basically bonded with him and watched the message from Princess Leia stored on the R2 unit. The room we saw is only part of the structure. There's also a cellar underground. Luke would actually return to Ben's house three more times in other canon after the old Jedi's death, the first time in Marvel Star Wars issues five through seven when he's searching for answers to existential questions after the Battle of Yavin. He ends up fighting Boba Fett there Mm. and with R2's help, defeats the bounty hunter. Actually, R2 mostly does it. And then he finds Ben Kenobi's journal. The second... After the duel on Bespin with Darth Vader, he goes looking for parts in order to build himself another lightsaber. That's how he gets that green-bladed lightsaber. And the third time in 12 ABY, in an attempt to connect with his late mentor's Force Spirit. That attempt is ultimately unsuccessful. Mal, mm. I didn't use any joins as requested. So it took me a lot longer than I expected, but I figured you were good for the nuggets. So let's roll like BB8 through 8 of our favorite insights and observations from this episode lightning round style. You go first.
0: Number 1. Not all of the callbacks in this episode were visual references or name drops. We got a ton of mirrored dialogue. Positively Game of Thrones season 8esque. <laughs> The first was the most overt because it was a callback to a line from this season of this show and immediately acknowledged as such when the attacking bounty hunter at the episode start tells Mando, quote, I can bring you in warmer, I can bring you in cold, which is what Mando, of course, said at the saloon in the opening scene of the entire season, which Mando very amusingly acknowledges with his that's my line that's quip right, right. here as he's blowing up the Pursuer. A few more notable ones. As mentioned earlier, Mando's she's no good to us deadline tutorial about Fennec recalls Boba's he's no good to me dead line from Cloud City in The Empire Strikes Back. We also got a carbon scoring callback as Peli's assessment of the Razor Crest. Ugh, you got a lot of carbon scoring building up top. Echoes Luke's assessment of R2-D2 in A New Hope as he's cleaning him. You got a lot of carbon scoring here. Looks like you boys have seen a lot of action. And then, of course, as Mando and Toro are plotting their attack on Fennec, Mando reminds Toro why they're at a disadvantage. She's got... The high ground! Come on. A call back I to it. Obi-Wan's iconic warning to Anakin on Mustafar in Revenge of the Sith. It's over, Anakin. I have the high ground. And then, of course, we got our second womp rat reference in the last two episodes, folks. The name, a nod to the critters that Luke used to gun down, giving him the confidence that he could then hit the exhaust port on the Death Star, played as a Odd term of endearment from yeah. Mando to Baby Yoda in chapter four with the you ready to lay low and stretch your legs for a couple of months, you little womp rat. But it's clearly an insult here when Pelly still at that point immune to Mando's charms, calls him a womp rat as I gotta he say, walks away. Disturbing to hear
1: her say it because it was like, man, is this kind of like a slur in the,
0: the galaxy? <laughs> oh, womp rat. I took it to mean, like, you piece of shit or something I like agree. that. I so agree. Yeah. Stop calling little baby Yoda a womp right. I know. Stop. Stop it. <laughs> Number two.
1: Mando may walk away, but Pelly still has company in the form of her pit droids. These yes. button noses are familiar to all Star Wars fans, formerly known as Dumb Series Pit droids. These little buddies are most often associated with pot racing maintenance. But, the compact size and relatively affordable price tag make them handy in many repair scenarios. They are 1.19 meters tall when expanded, but they can fold up like a poncho when they need to. Mandu achieves this by rudely shooting at them in Chapter Five? Unnecessary. But in Terrible. The Phantom Menace, Anakin provides a much less violent, albeit still invasive, method for triggering the shrinkage. Boop the nose! Hit the nose! manufactured by Servo Droid. They're Class 5 droids, meaning they're programmed for manual labor, but they've made impressions with their quirk and personality across many Star Wars properties, including Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, The Clone Wars, Rebels, Resistance, and now The Mandalorian and other branches of canon, though we've seen them often on Tatooine. We learn in Legends canon that they're native to Cerulea, though wherever they are, their considerable strength sets them apart. Their dome-shaped heads and photosensor nose are their signature aesthetics, And that nose allows them to scan objects they're repairing for structural damage. We often see them in groups, and that's no accident. They work well in units, even when those units report to someone less collegial than Peli, like Watto. While some cruel souls knock the pitchroids as incompetent or expendable to their price point and their size, they show real courage, often doing dangerous, physically demanding work. How about a loving nose tap of appreciation for a change instead of a blaster
0: bolt? They fucking deserve it. Number three, a few more droid-related nuggets for you. First, we've spoken a couple times already about our dude, R5-D4, but it would be a dereliction of duty, frankly, yes. at this point. Not to mention him again, given that he actually appeared in this episode, at least we think. Definitely looks like him. The R5 unit roaming around the most Eisley Cantina Definitely appears to be our R5, Old Red, whom, as you'll recall from our droid character study, our New Hope pod, and our Mando Chapter 2 pod, R5, racking up the mentions here on Pinch Mode Star Wars, is quietly one of the heroes of our saga. R5 got a bad rap after Episode 4 for his bad motivator. But in the 2017 short story, The Red One, we learned that R5 sacrificed himself so that R2 could continue his mission to aid the Rebellion. According to his legends, Canon R5 eventually made it out of the Jawa control, embedding with Vorin Nal and serving in Mos Eisley as a spy for the Rebellion. Looks like he stuck around after Endor. We've been expecting R5 since John Favreau posted a photo of him on his Instagram before the season, and the astromech has been alluded to elsewhere in the show as well. The Jawas in Chapter 2 had another R5 unit around their sandcrawler. And here in Chapter 5, Pelly's inclusion of a motivator in her sabacc bet naturally led us to think of R5-D4 again. We also saw a droid in the gunslinger that reminded us of other droids past. A gonk droid, Jason's favorite. I do love a gonk. Visible in the background as Mando returns to the Razor Crest at Bay 35 after meeting Toro, the GNK power droid, colloquially known as a gonk droid, are basically power generators as vital to life in certain parts of the galaxy, at least as batteries, would be here for us. And they're named for the sounds they make when they speak. Gonkian. They've been familiar to Star Wars fans since New Hope, including a terribly sad moment when one poor bubble has his feet branded in Return of the Jedi. And the overseer of that torture in Return of the Jedi is EV-99, a one-time peaceful evaporator mechanic who developed a taste for misery after a programming tweak and found no shortage of opportunities for inflicting pain while working for, of course, fucking Jabba the Hutt. She is also the subject of another callback in the gunslinger as the droid-tending bar at the cantina is also an EV series supervisor. Number four, speaking of that
1: bartender, his presence behind bar and R5's presence in front of the bar certainly seemed to signify a significant change in practices at Chowman's Cantina. As were, the barkeep in A New Hope infamously shouted to Luke, we don't serve their kind here, after spotting R2 and 3PO. Thankfully, that's no longer the case. Business isn't exactly booming at Chowman's here in 90BY, but one spot is taken Han Solo's old booth, yep. where Toro sits, one of the many visual signifiers asking us to compare Toro to our favorite gunslinger, Han. He's in the same booth, though no one sits. <laughs> My clunky. My clunky this time, and Credos blaster bolt wall damage appears to have been smoothed over and covered by some kind of like tile. It's not tile, but it's like a, some kind of wall decoration. <laughs> Anyway, he's wearing a leather vest and hip boots and a blaster holster. He's cracking wise. He even mentions Corellia, Han's home planet, perhaps indicating that he's from there, but certainly making us think of Han regardless. He's even sitting like Han, stretched out, Mm -hmm. arms all spread, seemingly comfortable and cool. The difference we'll soon see is that unlike Han, who is dope and great (laughs) and also good at what he does, Toro actually sucks and is bad and is incompetent. <laughs> Sorry about the mess, Chalmers.
0: Indeed. Number five, at least we know that Toro had cash on hand and in hand. Given the conversation between Mando and Cargo earlier this season about imperial credits versus those delicious calamari flan, it's notable the Toro was twirling would appear to be New Republic credits here, golden, pure. Unfortunately, Mando finds himself facing Toro in the first place because he's not liquid enough to pay for the repairs on the Razor Crest, depositing 500 Imperial credits with Peli and then seeking work for the rest. He made his way to Peli, though, in the first place after receiving the following transmission instruction. This is most Eisley Tower. We are tracking you. Head for Bay 35. Over. The voice issuing those instructions may have sounded familiar to Star Wars fans. It's Steve Blum, who voices Zeb, one of Jason's picks for Beater on his Quidditch team on Star Wars Rebels, and numerous other characters on Star Wars video games. The most Eisley Spaceport has 362 docking bays, plenty of places to land in the armpit of the galaxy. Take your pick. And Blum led Mando to bay 3-5, moving Baby Yoda and Mando within 59 spots of Docking Bay 94.
1: Docking Bay 94.
0: Where Han parked, of course, the Millennium Falcon and where Luke and Obi-Wan and R2 and 3PO would go to meet him to board the Falcon and depart Tatooine. No one, oh, thankfully, God. had to step on a hot tail to get to the Razor Crest.
1: Number 6. While the Razor Crest needed repairs, we saw some other nifty tech in this episode that called back to prior canon first and most notably, speeder bikes that Toro fetches for himself and Mando, which we knew were coming at some point this season, thanks to the props inclusion at Star Wars Celebration in April. According to the information from that Star Wars Celebration display, the speeder model in question is the Mob Quet Zephyr J, making it a different model than the 74Z speeder bikes used in the Endor Chase and Return of the Jedi, but physically similar ones nonetheless. Before Mando landed the Razorcrest, we got another tech comp, the targeting computers used in the aerial dogfights appear to be the same as the ones used in A New Hope to attack the Death Star. Then there's the Binox, which, before Mando barters with them in order to gain passage through Tusken Raider land, Toro uses to gaze out across the Dune Sea, at which point he spots two Banthas. In A New Hope, Luke used his macro binoculars to spy two Banthas mm-hmm. on the path to Obi-Wan's home in the Dune Sea. And just as the scene with Toro, he turns around to find a... Uh, Tusken Raider right behind him. Sadly for Luke, he wasn't able to peacefully negotiate with the Tuskens as Mando (laughs) did. And then there's Fennec's blaster, which Mando IDs as an MK-modified rifle, joining a long history of sniper blasters in Star Wars, including Zam, another assassin who, like Fennec, met her demise shortly after employing such an assassin's rifle, albeit a different model.
0: Shouts to Zam. Miss her still. Number seven, speaking of Fennec. Ming-Na Wen's role is not her first in the Disney family, as she previously played June in the Joy Luck Club, voiced Mulan in the iconic 1998 animated classic, and played the cavalry in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., among a handful of other Disney roles. So given her involvement in The Mandalorian and S.H.I.E.L.D., Wen joins a growing list of actors who've participated in both Star Wars and Marvel. Some of the other notable names who've been in both IP giants, Mando creator, Jon Favreau, obviously, who voices pre and Paz Vizsla, and plays Rio in Star Wars, and of course, Happy in Marvel, not to mention his directing roles. Samuel L. Jackson, who plays both Mace Windu and Nick Fury. Natalie Portman, who plays both Padme and Jane Foster. Andy Serkis, who plays both Snoke and Claw. Paul Bettany, who plays both Dryden Voss and Vision. Donald Glover, who plays both Lando and Aaron Davis. Forrest Whitaker, who plays both Saw Gerrera, Lies, deception. and Lies! <laughs> lies. Nice! <And laughs> Ben Mendelssohn, your boy, who plays both Grenick. <laughs> Grenick! <laughs> God. Benicio del Toro, who plays DJ and The Collector. Lupita, the legend, who plays both Maz and the Kia. Mods Mickelson, who plays both Galen Orso and Casilius. And Teiko Atini, who plays, of course, IG 11 and Korg, uh, I plus, love Korg. like Favs directs. Big fan of Korg. On and on the list goes from there, given the speed, of course, with which mandos running through cameos and the impending Disney live action TV shows elsewhere, we could see that list and that overlaps well further from here.
1: Hey, man, what is this stuff coming out of you? Is it like eggs? Left <laughs> love cork. Number eight. Comedian cameos on The Mandalorian is officially a trend. Comics Horatio Sands and Brian Posen played roles in Chapter 1 as the Mythral and the Uber speeder driver on the Ice Planet, respectively, and director comic Taika Waititi, who played IG-11, also had a Chapter 1 role and is slated as the director of the Season 1 finale. Yes! We know that Bill Burr's debut, teased in the second trailer, if you want to get a glimpse, is still to come. And in Chapter 5, Amy Sedaris played a huge role. Yes! Wow. Sedaris and John Favreau are no strangers to working together, having previously paired up on Elf, Chef, mm. Chef, <laughs> *John Favreau's Chef. Remarkable. Watch it now. It. <laughs> and The Lion King. Chef was actually not bad. Yeah, I'd like to see it. But those aren't the (laughs) only notable Sedaris-centric aspects of this episode. Her character, Pelley Motto, also bore unmistakable similarities to her BoJack Horseman character, Mm. as she has to simultaneously do her job and care for a baby while growing frazzled at the foolish decisions of a man who lacks
0: any common sense.
1: Also, I feel like this was a subtle Ripley from Alien
0: callback with the outfit and the hair. Yeah, the the Ghostbusters hair, too, there. Couple Sigourney Weaver nods. Jason? Yes? You're smarter than you look. Thank God. Just ask today's winner. Every episode, we're going to honor the character who rallied the troops, advanced the cause, and today, the winner of our Medal of Bravery is...
1: Could only be Peli motto. Come on! The most icily docking bay mechanic played by Amy Sedaris is an instant icon for numerous... Reasons. Number one among them, she can't wait to hold baby Yoda, nuzzle to nuzzle him. him, to talk to him, <laughs> tickle his little brow, to touch his little ears, feed him, hold which him. is the response that any sane yes. human being with a beating heart would have.
0: <laughs> she holds him, she feeds him, she rocks him until he no! naps in her arms. She rips Mando a new asshole right through that Thank you. Beskar. First Cavalier approach to parenting, rightly lecturing him on how foolish she is to leave baby Yoda unattended.
1: She also has real rapport with her pit droids. And since this is a pro droid podcast, Mando, get it together. How about (laughs) any droid that holds a gun? No. Every other droid? Fine.
0: Mando would be so offended by the binge mode droid character study. We
1: think that this speaks to her progressiveness, yes. her open heart, her open mind. What's not to love about Peli kicking back with her metal buds and playing a nice game of sabox?
0: fabulous. She's also clearly a very skilled mechanic. Repairing the razor crest is ample damage without assistance. And ultimately, despite the bartering about what the pay rate was going to be and everything else, working on the ship before she knows that Mando's actually good for it. He returns to the money. She's already finished. She's done. What a professional.
1: She's also rocking, as we noted, a killer jumpsuit and a dope hairdo, and she's unafraid to speak her mind. But again, nothing at all tops her instinct to protect little baby Yoda at all costs. That's all we want from this series. And that's what she gave us. She could have said to her, hey, he's yours. This is not my affair. Right. Take him. I don't want anything take to do Take it out of this. my bay. Yeah, take it out of my bay. Ambush him outside. Whatever you have to do, I'm out. Instead, he used her as a hostage, indicating her effort to impede him for the sake of little Mamiona. Yeah. And then... Who immediately goes to soothe LBY after the showdown with Toro? I'll tell you, who. it's not Mando, it's Peli. Mando walks over, but Peli is- Peli,
0: yeah, but he's like, is he dead? <laughs> Baby Yoda reaches for Peli, that's the he's real- He's like, oh, the, little, that's the, the little clawed hand. So sweet.
1: And it's clear as it has been all episode that Baby Yoda is drawn to her, yes. reaching, as we said, for her, and cooing at her repeatedly with love and joy and gratitude. Thank you, Peli, for all your good
0: Works. Wonderful. All right, friends. If you go after her, you won't make it past sunrise. Just as we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Graham, our indispensable producer and researcher, we hope that you had as much fun as we did today that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder, continue to explore the galaxy, and that you'll join us again next time for our deep dive into Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. Until then, fetch us something to eat, quick. Something with bones in it.
1: Need to find somebody in the big, bad galaxy and no idea how to find them? Introducing Bounty Hunter Tracking Fob, version 2. What does it do? No idea. How does it work? We don't know. But does it track people? It absolutely does. Points you to the location of people in hiding somewhere on a planet. Need to find somebody who's in motion through a desert? It can do it. Need to find somebody hiding in a forest? It can do it. Need to find somebody being guarded by multiple mercenaries? It can do it. How does it work? That's a trade secret.